Okay, the Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, you have given us the sacraments to be outward and visible signs of the inward and spiritual graces you intend for us at all times. Help us as we contemplate and participate in these mysteries to draw us closer to you and to one another. Increase our joy and fashion our world after your imagination. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so welcome back. And um, if you don't know where we are, we've really bogged down on marriage, which I think is a good thing, because one of the neat things about the sacraments in general, well, I think, is that they don't simply just mean one thing, right? I mean, we talked about the Eucharist, and we continue to bring it up, I think, because the Eucharist means so many different things to us at so many different times in our lives. And I think that's actually what makes them sacramental. And um, to be honest with you, just because I always like to make lots of, <laughs> lots of um, preferential, uh, no, no, pref I like to preface <laughs> everything with lots of other obscure and arcane comments. Uh, I, I, I've sort of decided that that's what makes scripture uh, one of our three pillars in the Episcopal Church is that, you know, often other books we read mean one thing or two things. And the great thing about Scripture is there are so many different meanings to be had. Often, um, every time I read Scripture with sort of an openness to what Scripture might be saying, I, I, I often leave with a different read then I leave before. Now, just to be honest with you, if you do it enough, you can't do that every time. So often it reads just like I thought it would because that's what I expected it to read. <laughs> I think the sacraments are like that, right? What's great about Scripture, too, and I think this relates to the sacraments, is, you know, Scripture is full of, 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 of little bits of strongly divergent opinion. Uh, what do I mean? If you've ever read Ezra and Nehemiah, sort of says that non-Jewish people are bad. And if you hang around them, they'll make you bad. So get rid of foreign women and mixed racial children because those people will draw you to their foreign religious customs. Anybody read these books before? Just out of curiosity. Anybody ever read Ezra Nehemiah? We'll have to remedy that. So um, that's the voice of Ezra and Nehemiah. But if you read the book of Jonah or the book of Ruth, even if you read the book of Joshua, the foreign people actually end up being really good folk. Ruth's a foreigner. Um, Rahab is not just a foreigner, she's a prostitute, so she's double bad. And, uh, and Jonah, right, is the prophet who says, people from Nineveh deserve to die, so I don't want to preach repentance because God will listen. <laughs> There's an interesting bit where Ezra and Nehemiah are so strongly one way, and Jonah and Ruth and Joshua are really strongly the other way. And of course, the way I grew up simplistically, right, is that, oh, there's a contradiction. The Bible contradicts itself. So how can you trust it? And I actually have come to grow that that's exactly why you can trust the Bible. <laughs> because my own life is so full of mysterious contradictions about grace and where God is and what I think and what I feel and what God would ask me to do, not in spite of those feelings, but because of them. 
something neat about Scripture itself. I mean, I've moved on from my upbringing that says Scripture has to be monolithic and have one message to this idea that Scripture can have holy conversations with itself with the purpose of drawing us into conversation with one another about where God is in our world. And, and if it's okay to say again in, pre, in, in preface, I really think that's what healthy contemplation of the sacraments do. They draw us into holy conversation about the places and ways we've experienced God, what the rules are, whether God likes to break the rules, for what reason, and should we? Does, does, does that sort of make sense? That's where we've got bogged down on marriage. <laughs> what are the rules? And what are the graces? Right? Now, I do think it's really, really important, and this is somewhat in ordination, um, to correct a factual bit I aired on last week. So don't, don't get too mad at me. I wasn't completely wrong, just 100% wrong, but also 100% right. We have this weird thing in the Episcopal Church, the way we're organized, it's called polity, the way we govern ourselves, you know. And, and I just want to let you know that, I'm, and it's funny, you can't really talk about, for me, I can't talk about one of these without somehow linking it to the other ones, okay? So I just want to tell you a couple weird things about ordination. I know we're talking about marriage, but a couple weird things about ordination. We are the only denomination that I know of that's mainline, I mean, this sort of big, right? in which a bishop has been ordained three times. So in the Episcopal Church, there are deacons and priests and bishops. And what those look like, again, I'm, 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 I know I'm talking about ordination, but I'm not really, I'm talking about polity, the way we're organized. There's laity, that includes everybody in the world, frankly, whether they know it or not. Isn't it funny how God works that way? <laughs> You're included in the laity, and your descent is irrelevant. Some people are called to be deacons. It's a much smaller pool, actually, than the diagram showing, right? Those are people who wear the collar but don't. It's so funny. They don't actually do any sacraments unless a priest who's a rector lets them do it. <laughs> this is hierarchical Church of England model. Just, we'll talk about that later. A smaller group are priests, and the smallest group are the bishops. And you might be thinking, well, what about the Archbishop of Canterbury? Not an Episcopalian. What about the presiding bishop? Just a bishop. Just a bishop. And I mean just. Well, why am I telling you this? Again, to emphasize the uniqueness. If you're a Lutheran bishop, you are ordained to the priesthood, and then you got to be a bishop, but that wasn't another ordination. You may know this, we're in full communion with the ELCA Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. We're not in communion with the Wisconsin Synod or the Missouri Synod. That doesn't mean we don't like them. What it means to be in communion is basically our clergy are interchangeable. So I could go be an Evangelical Lutheran pastor maybe next week. I'd have to give some evidence that like, I liked being Lutheran, I can't give that evidence so I won't be that person, right? I mean, I just, I love the prayer book. I'm just, honestly, that's, I do. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm here, but, but theoretically that's how it works. We're in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. 
which means if I went to a bishop or a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church or an archbishop or I don't know who I'd have to go to, one of those people, and made a strong case that I'd converted to the Roman faith, I could be a Roman priest and keep my wife and kids. Again, I could, can, can do that. In the Roman church, though, you're not ordained three separate times, only one time. You're a lifelong deacon or you're a lifelong priest. Does this make sense what I'm saying? How we're different. Another interesting thing about the sacraments in general in the Episcopal Church, and you really see it in ordination, I'm sure I've said this before, where the only tradition that not only ordains you on separate occasions as you sort of move from circle to circle, and this is also interesting because we're the only one who does this, you figure this out, you can't be a bishop without having first been a deacon. <laughs> does that make sense? Nobody's just made bishop. You're made a deacon, and then you're made a priest, and then you're made a bishop, right? We're also the only one in which you cannot be defrocked. So no bishop can take my ordination away from me. Remember, the way the polity works is the bishop of Texas can say, such and such priest cannot celebrate sacraments in my diocese. Not in the world. That means, theoretically, I could go to the Diocese of West Texas if I've been inhibited in the Diocese of Texas, and the bishop in West Texas might not inhibit me. The bishop of West Texas might say, you're welcome to celebrate the sacraments in my diocese. And that's because, right, every bishop is the, prim the primo authority in her or his own diocese. That's why being the presiding bishop is not a big deal. The presiding bishop cannot tell the bishop of Texas what to do. Cannot. Well, he can. But our bishop doesn't have to listen. And, and it's interesting. Well, I think it's interesting, right? Again, I, I like the rules because I'm like a petty person and, and I really like knowing rules. Turns out that the bishop is the diocese. So you know when Andy Doyle goes to Taiwan to meet with the House of Bishops, Diocese of Texas has gone to Taiwan. Do, do, do you sort of know this? It's an interesting bit. Unlike most other denominations, in fact, really unlike all major denoms, we just have these little idiosyncrasies. So far, am I just boring you to, to tears? Um, I want to say that you'll hear our polity and you'll say, that has its problems. It has its advantages, and that's what makes it a human institution. We just sort of have to remember this, right? It does, does both things. Well, back to the other bit, <clears throat> the correction, which is only partially a native correction, just because I mentioned it and some of you were here. We have this difficult bit in our polity because we are extremely hierarchical, but also not. Again, I can't be defrocked. I can just be refused from cele celebrating the sacraments. The only way I lose my ordination is if I give it up. And, and we've had priests at St. Thomas who have, well, I don't know what the word is, recanted their vows, which meant they were no longer priests in God's one holy Catholic apostolic church, right? Okay, so, so we know people who've done that in, in the diocese who have served here. Doesn't mean anything bad, just means that's, they're going back to a different sort of way of being, right? Still, still in God's people, right? Okay, so I told you this a little bit last week, and I don't know why, except, again, it's really strange and like to 
I sort of think it might have been relevant. Now I'm thinking it's not, but I got to correct it because I said it. We have two kinds of churches in the Diocese of Texas or the Episcopal Church. We have parishes and we have missions. Remember, parishes pay their own bills and contribute to the diocese. And do you know who decides how much we should contribute to the diocese? The, well, the bishop approves the recommendation of the mission share committee. So really, yes, the bishop does. Um, not the parishes. Does this make sense, <laughs> what I'm saying, right? So if you do both things, you take care of yourself and you contribute you get to be a parish, and that has advantages because a parish calls their own rector. A parish picks their own vestry, whereas theoretically a mission has an appointed, it's not even called a vestry, it's called the bishop's committee, and the senior warden is the bishop's warden. You know in the parish who picks the senior warden is the rector. In the mission, the bishop picks the senior warden, although, honestly, the vicar, who's like the rector, sort of, the vicar's the one who makes the recommendation, and usually the bishop says, yeah, great choice, right? Because there's 150 places in Texas, that's a lot of interviews, right? The vicar can be removed by the bishop for any reason. Removed is the wrong word. Transferred, the bishop might say, vicar A is doing great in A, location A, but I think location B really needs vicar A, and then you can move, right? That's sort of it. And, and, and a priest doesn't have to be a vicar. <laughs> the bishop, this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is America. I just want you to know, this is American polity. Think about all the checks and balances. The bishop can say, hey, priest Q, I want you to be vicar A, and priest Q can say, not being a vicar, bishop. <laughs> might be hard to find work in that diocese. Might be hard. <laughs> Uh, but priests can do this, okay? Here, we're a parish, pay our mission share pledge every year, sometimes by the skin of our teeth, but we do it. Represents, in case you're wondering, more than 10, well, right around 10% of our receipts, 10%. Uh, we, we sort of, we pay that. We get a rector. We call it a rector. That means... You picked your, <laughs> I think you guys are crazy. You picked your rector. The bishop can veto the rector choice, but a bishop can't make a call committee call a particular rector. Does this make sense? So there is like this, again, everything is checks and balances, right? Really checks and balances. I told you last week the rector's a tenured position, which is true. That means the bishop can remove a rector, cannot remove her or his ordination, can only remove a rector for sexual or financial indiscretion, like embezzlement. Not like, oh, you bought coffee mugs and we wanted styrofoam cups, the bishop will remove you. That, that's not gonna, it's not gonna work like that. Does it make sense what I'm saying? It has to be basically theft. It can't be, I don't like that the priest authorized X expenditure, right? Um, priest can be a heretic. Priests can be a heretic. Priests can say Jesus never existed, there's no resurrection. Priests can say you're a sinner and I'm not serving you at the rail to everybody in the congregation. Bishop can't remove priest for that. Priest has to be tried by an ecclesiastical court on which the bishop might sit. Ecclesiastical court can remove you for heresy, 
Bishop can't. Does this, does this sort of make sense? Checks and balances, right? Well, I told you this last week. This is still correct, only, only partially. The only way a parish can get rid of a rector, like let's pretend you called a rector and rector worked four hours a week. I've seen this happen. And you start to say, wow, you're not visiting sick people. Wow, you're also a heretic, and whenever we see you, you're, you're rude and you smell bad, right? I mean, you just think of whatever list you want. Parish cannot remove that rector for any of those reasons. Parish can go to the bishop and say, our rector's a scumbag. Bishop's going to say that he's stealing money. Did she have any kind of extramarital affairs? Well, no. Bishop's hands are a little tied, right? Which means the only way out, if you're stuck with a cleric you don't like, is to trim their salary and hope they leave. Well, the other thing you could do is send them chain letters. You know, where you like cut out little pieces from the magazine, right? And glue those together and say, please leave. Really, please. Pr pretty please. You know, you can do stuff like that. You, I guess you could throw tomatoes at them during the sermon, but that would hurt the carpet even worse. So you don't want to do that. So I had told you, you can't really deal with the rector. And again, you can trim their salary, except when rectors come to a, a parish, they get something called a letter of agreement. That's like a contract. And, and sort of the bishop signs it. And let me just tell you what's standard in Texas. We get vacation. You can't change that. You could ask the diocese to change it, but they won't. I just want you to know. They won't say like, oh, you get two weeks of vacation, but your parish wants you to have one, so we're going to change that. You, you, you know what I mean? Like that's promised regardless of what you want. The, that's why the diocese prepares the contracts. Um, <clears throat> You can't take away continuing education from your priest. You just can't do that, right? Because that, that's pro forma. We just, we, we get that. We're also promised financial compensation. This is where it gets hard. Because you can't change the letter of agreement without permission of the diocese. Which would mean, if you don't like your rector and you want to lower their salary beneath what they started, you have to have permission from the diocese. And you know an argument the diocese does not like to hear? We don't like our priest. Because <laughs> that upsets the tenure system. Do you, you, you get what I mean? They do it, but you almost have to prove that because of your priest, you can't pay them what you started with. So I just wanted to resolve that for you. Which means, and I told you this two years ago, we'd already done it. <sighs> you got to be real careful who you sign as your rector. I mean, real careful. And just for its, what it's worth, there's two things bishops can do that priests can't. This one and that one, which tells you really that some of the primary work of the episcopate or the bishopric the most intentional work has got to be picking the right people to be deacons and priests because you can't undo it. 
and picking the right people to be rectors because you can stop them. You can veto them. Once you pick them, hard to unpick them. <laughs> Same with this. Got to make sure you're confirming good folks. Oh, confirmation and ordination. Sorry. Okay, was that helpful? Maybe that was just really boring and you're like, Michael, uh, objection, relevance? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Oh, yes. So, in that case, then, I guess the parish can't, can't make the priest, but I guess the parish can still ask the bishop to inhibit the priest? Is that yeah, the parish can ask the bishop to inhibit the priest, but that's only going to happen if there's clear financial or sexual indiscretion. The inhibition. The heresy charge means court, ecclesiastical court, on which the bishop will preside, right? But there's other members of that court, if that makes sense. Yes, it's real messy, right? What's interesting is, you know, there's this, there's this thing in the American legal system called choice of law. Does anybody know about this? Sometimes we try international cases in the United States, but the case doesn't really warrant U.S. law. There's a, this is like two, one of two law school classes I went to, and my wife makes fun of me for this. So if you're a lawyer at home, I might be messing this up. But um, there's this thing called forum nonconvenience, and, and the original case is Piper v. Reno, in which there was a Piper plane, that's American um, aviation company. I mean, really, they were up front. Anybody know Piper? Yeah, well, this is, this is shuttle place, right? So you, Piper, really advanced. Uh, crashed outside of Scotland. And they argued to try the case on Scottish law instead of American law, and the judge accepted it. And, and that motion is called forum nonconvenience, right? Well, anyway, there's U.S. law, and then there's canon law, and those are different bits. <laughs> and when we have ecclesiastical court, we have it on, on canon law, just for what it's worth. So what, what happens to those priests that, for whatever reason, do not I, yeah, so the question is, what happens to priests that don't fit in? Well, in general, they stay, they stay. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. They stay. And there's one of these interesting things that happens in both the Episcopal and Methodist churches, because I've been in both, and I actually sort of like it, because I'll tell you, as a non-denom, I didn't have a huge pain threshold. As a non-denom, if we didn't like the pastor, we could get rid of him that day. And of course, there's a problem. That means pastor may not be able to preach her or his conscience, may not be able to, afraid of constituency, right? So it's nice to have tenure. That's what you have at a university, right? So that you can follow your conscience. It's a good thing. The, the, the ugly side is, it's the same in the school system. You get tenured teachers that aren't working or aren't effective. What do you do? Well, they're tenured. So typically what you do, this is going to sound really bad, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to sound like my dad. What do you do with a bad teacher? You make them an administrator. <laughs> Anybody taught before in public schools? <laughs> this was my mother's experience, too, although she would have said it much more nicely than I just did, right? You promote them out. You're just trying to get them out. And what can you do? Uh, sometimes vestries will offer, like, severance packages basically can do that. 
like we'll pay you out for the year, but you just need to go. Some, some people will take that. You know, the other thing that we have in the Episcopal Church, this is interesting to know, is supposedly the, the number two rated pension system was started by J.P. Morgan way back in like 1911. The Episcopal, the, the church pension group bought eBay as a startup. <laughs> and sold them and did quite well, as you can imagine, right? So, so church pension group owns some interesting bits. Well, what's interesting is there's a number of priests, and I know some personally who, who wouldn't tell me this directly, but we're like 23 years into the pension system. That means they had seven more to go until they could sort of retire with their guaranteed retirement. And the whole unpleasantness with Gene Robinson happened, and they hated it, hated it, were vociferously anti-church, but they couldn't leave until they put seven more years in. I mean, just, I mean, just think about that, right? Really good thing can have unintended consequences, right? Because uh, they're not happy and neither are any of the churches that they've served, right? I mean, when you're just not happy with the church that's employing you and serving you week after week after week, it just becomes transparent. So what do people do after they haven't you know, done well, where they look somewhere else. They try to go somewhere else. Or they try to get approval to do some other ministry, hoping that'll work. Or they recant their vows. Or they become Lutheran. Or they you, you know what I mean? There's, there's lots of options, right? But, but to not be a priest, I'll just let you know, with the, you're not asking about the pension system, but it's good you know that if I said, well, I just want to teach high school math again, that'd be therapeutic for me. That year or two years or ten years will not count towards my pension. <laughs> unless the bishop says it does. I have to make a really hard case for that. Like, I'd probably have to teach math at Episcopal High School, you know, and, 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 and really cajole that to count toward my pension. Because actually the bishop is the one who decides whether it counts toward the pension or not. I don't really know what else to tell you, right? I mean, it's, it's this weird bit, right, that sometimes there's priests that just float around and don't seem to fit anywhere, but they keep getting somewhere. Right. And that to me is not good. Well, it's tough. You know, it's tough. And, and, I, and I think the truth is when uh, supply is high, you can make descent demand decisions. But when supply is low, it's much harder. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, re it's really possible. I mean, you, you hope that a call committee and that the, the sort of the people directing ordinations recognized some kind of spiritual giftedness or ministry experience when they ordained somebody. And so honestly, you know, maybe being a rector is not the call because being a rector means you're supposed to be good at everything or at least pretend like you are, you know? And that's really, really difficult. And I can tell you, I don't know any rector that's good at everything. I know rectors that are so good at pastoral care, so good, but uh, running a staff or preaching every week is just not their thing. And, and I'm not sure they ever pretended that it was, right? But that's the hard bit, right? And, and especially in a small place, you got to be somewhat good at, at, at everything or know people who are that you can recruit to help you with your deficiencies. Otherwise, people are going to say, like, like, well, you're not visiting sick people. Your sermons are great, but you can't visit sick people? Really? That's not why we go here. Or you're visiting all these people, but, you know, 
I just don't really want to see you on Sundays because the sermons, oy, you know, just come visit me when I'm sick. That's, that's really all I want. You, you know, I mean, this is, this is a tough, tough, tough thing. Okay, I just wanted to clear up that business that I introduced last week. Hard to get rid of a rector. It, it, it is. The way you can do it is by lowering Sally with the diocese's permission. Yes, sir. One thing to go back, and you mentioned we made payments to the diocese. They're really two separate payments. And one of them is to support the diocese, and the other is to support the outreach. And yeah. uh, you've got to do one, and the other is a little more optimal. But they are both public knowledge. And, and we are doing that now. This is important to know. Um, it's really good to know. Oh, the other, only other thing, just because we're talking about weird idiosyncrasies, right, is that in a time of conflict, let's pretend the vestry turns against the priest. The bishop might come and dissolve the vestry. Now, if you're, that's happened here, you know, so it might happen. Uh, and then what happens is, of course, the parish will elect a new vestry. But the bishop won't appoint a new vestry, the bishop can only import, appoint a bishop's committee at a mission, but can't appoint a vestry at a parish. Does this make sense? So really, so you know, if you're a mission, you run on the Church of England polity, where the bishop does everything. If you're a parish, then the bishop can veto you, but it's really what you want to do. Does that make sense? The Methodist Church runs like the Church of England because John Wesley was an Anglican. So they elect bishops sometimes, but do district superintendents are appointed. There's the itineracy system where you're supposed to rotate a Methodist where it's elder, not priest. The elders are supposed to be rotated every three to five years, like the circuit rider idea, right? Of course, we all know that if you're a Methodist church with a lot of money, you keep your person as long as you want. I mean, this is just, I'm, I'm just going to be honest, this is how it works. Polity, yeah. Uh, I guess it's the assets of the church, of the parish, don't belong to the parish. You got it. And every church that fought it lost. Because lots of people, including like the Diocese of South Carolina, <laughs> I mean the whole diocese, said those are ours. And the court said, no. <laughs> no. No parish won their building from the Episcopal Church. None. The way the polity is set up is you all want to leave and start a new place across the street, great, but you're leaving the keys. Do you know who owns the deed? The diocese is the bishop. <laughs> the bishop holds the deed. Now, just because we're talking about weird, weird polity, I'm about to stop. There's this interesting case happening in the diocese of Los Angeles, which, what do you know, is like the size of Texas where the bishop holding the property decided he'd just sell one of them. And um, now he's being sued for that because the parish didn't want to sell the parish. So did he, did he, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. What's interesting is the jury is composed of civilians and clerics. It's this interesting form of forum nonconvenience that I, that I referred to you because there's civil law and there's canon law, and I think they're trying to figure out which legal basis they're going to use. Of course, they're going to end up using a little bit of both. 
And that's a that's Diocese of Los Angeles. Yeah. That's a great question. I think he decided the assets would better serve the diocese if liquidated. And that's a great thing. I think the issue was that, and I could be getting this wrong, but I, but I don't think I am. The issue was he sold a parish, not a mission. <laughs> well, that's real different. Missions belong totally to the bishop. But, but as I told you, parishes have rectors. Okay. Now, why did I do all of this? Because... We were talking about the sacrament of marriage, <laughs> and I was talking about bizarre idiosyncrasies, and I just want to remind you of what those are, and then you may not want to talk about this anymore. You may want to say, Mike, that's enough about that. Why don't we talk about ordination and bizarre arcane Episcopal law some more, which, which I can kind of do. Um, <laughs> here were the sort of the facts that are related to the polity. The rector decides who's married in her or his church. The rector can prevent any marriage that she or he wants to prevent for any reason. Any priest can decline a marriage invitation. So you could be an associate, right? Deacons can marry with the rector's permission. That's interesting, right? Bishops don't always like that happening, but you know, usually what the bishop says, defer to the rector because it's checks and balance. I mean, again, it's like a complicated system, right? Theoretically, deacons shouldn't do it, but if the rector deems it necessary in the parish, then the rector does. Deacons should not be baptizing people unless the rector says, deacon, why don't you baptize so-and-so? I did that. <laughs> And then I realized I needed permission. But you know the rector had given it to me already. So when I asked the bishop, he said, do what the rector says, which was do it. So, so it was good, right? Whew. Sometimes in the Episcopal church system, we ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Usually it's easier to get. Um, interesting bit. I'll talk about that more with polity. Okay, so. so can do an emergency baptism. Emergency. However, emergency baptisms don't happen in the parish at the font. No. That's the difference. So we're talking about doing the bits in the parish. Yeah. I think it is useful to know that. It is useful. So if you're visiting somebody who's dying and they say, I've never been baptized and I want to, you get to do it. If, if you believe that person really wants the sacrament or if that even matters to you. Again, that, that, that matters. It's a question of your conscience. You might say, um, well, I see that you're dying. Let's have six hours of baptismal instruction, and then, and then I'll do this for you. <laughs> Call the priest if that's your inclination, right? Because I can do it faster than six hours. Um, okay, so the rector can say, any priest can say no to any marriage. No bishop or a priest or deacon can make a priest marry somebody they don't want to marry for any reason. I told you the reasons can be real bad. Could be a mixed racial couple, right? And that's, I won't do it. Okay, it's not going to happen by you. Yes, ma'am. So it's, it's back to if a particular priest refuses to marry you, you could throw try another one. You sure can. Right? You got it. Okay. Really is individualistic. I won't do it. Now, the difference is if you're a rector, you can say to your associate who really wants to do that wedding, you can say, not in my church, and it will never happen in the rector's church. That's weird, isn't it? 
But it makes, I guess, and again, it makes the high, part of this hierarchical system, right? So could be a great couple. The whole congregation could support it, and the rector can say, nope, and it'll never happen on the grounds. Okay? The only permissions the rector needs to do marriages on the grounds, well, back up. There's one caveat to this. I can marry anybody I want to unless they are a second, one of them, it's a second marriage. I don't mean they're a widow. Widows are fine. But if there's someone who's been divorced, and just one, and they want to be remarried, I have to have the bishop's permission to do it. If I could do the wedding without the bishop's permission, but then theoretically the bishop could negate the marriage, and the bishop could inhibit me for, for, for being bad. You know what I mean? So I have to have permission to do a second marriage, and I told you what that looks like is me writing a letter to the bishop saying, you really, I'm really requesting your permission because, you know, Connie and, and Steve are fantastic. You know, the first marriage was abusive. They love each other. I've counseled them. I believe in them. And I've never heard a bishop say no to a, to a letter. Never heard that. I told you the neat thing in San Diego was the bishop said, I wanted those letters so that when more conservative-minded people said there shouldn't be second marriages, I should say, no, this is why there should be second marriages. These people are living the sacrament, right? The other thing that I told you, and this is true, this is where it gets a little bit, you know, sort of dicey. So just, I want everyone to take a deep breath. A rector can marry any couple, heterosexual or same-sex same union, same-sex marriage now. We don't even use the word union, right? Marriage, because it's a federal law, right? Um, I guess people can ask for blessing, but nobody really does that anymore. They ask to be married. Rector can marry any couple they want to off the church grounds. Don't need a letter from the bishop to do it. Not in Texas. This judgment's been made, right? So, so Connie... And Christine can ask any priest in the diocese, rector or not, any priest, we want to be married in our yard, it's up to that priest. Let's pretend I have an associate. And I think Connie and Christine should not be married because I think gay marriage is a sin. So we're pretending, right? And I say to my associate, you cannot do that. Yes, they can. <laughs> course it gets real funny right because the associate rector doesn't exist in the church canons they serve at the at the pleasure of the rector not at the vestry at the rector so so theoretically you could part ways over that decision but you can't stop it from happening does it just make sense so here's the funny bit this is kind of how i got into the whole polity bit last time is that any priest can do any wedding off church property except for a second marriage, they need a letter from the bishop. If a priest wants to do a same-sex marriage in the church in which they're called to serve, they have to have permission. Could do it across the street or in the park, but to do it in the sanctuary, have to have permission. From whom, do you suppose? Well, somewhat, really, and I mean, the answer is yes. But really, the bishop's decision is based on the decision of the vestry. You might be saying, don't you mean the parish? 
And the answer is no. I mean the vestry. This happens a lot of different ways. In the Diocese of Texas, so you know the rules, and this is very rules-based. We're going to get back to the, 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 the spiritual grace of all this in a second, okay? The Diocese of Texas, the process is that the vestry is supposed to go through an evaluation of scripture, reason, and tradition, right, regarding same-sex marriage. Not doing blessings anymore, right, just so we know, of marriage. And the rector is supposed to write a letter to the bishop saying that the vestry has done this and the diocese has some prescribed resources, right, although some of it's variable. The vestry votes. And of course, the vestry, like the United States, is not a democracy. The vestry is a republic, which means the vestry votes their conscience, not yours. Does this make sense? The vestry can vote affirmative a margin six to five. Guess what will happen? Same-sex marriage is in the sanctuary. If the priest chooses, the rector chooses to have that. Priest can't make an associate do it. Vestry could vote, we want to have this, and the rector could say, never. <laughs> and as long as that's your rector, it never happens. Does this just make sense, what I'm saying? Hmm. I mean, calling the I rector. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so calling the rector and I think budgetary decisions, right? Like the whole church could say, we want a loan to build a hallway. And the vestry could vote their conscience and say, no, <laughs> no hallway. I mean, the vestry could really vote their will and not the will of the parents. I just want you to know that, right? Who made the decision that this same-sex marriage has to be voted on by the vestry? It's a great question. Honestly, honestly and, and this isn't bad, right? This is the decision of, of the bishop for how things are to unfold, in our case, in his diocese. Do other dioceses do it different? The answer is maybe, but I can tell you it came from San Diego that you may think, those liberal Californians, well, San Diego is actually a red city, and the diocese is a red diocese because it's a huge military community. It's actually pretty like Houston, reddish-purple, right? And in San Diego, of course, this was before California, who was the first adopter. Well, we were after, what is that? But isn't this the only thing that's inhibiting your choice as a rector? It is. Other than, a second, other than a second marriage. In fact, in San Diego, what we had to do, if, we, if somebody asked on us, we had to have the same-sex blessing because it wasn't a marriage yet legally. It became in California before it became in the U.S., so there was interesting transitions. If, if, if somebody asked us to do a same-sex blessing or and then later a marriage, we had to have them write the same letter to the bishop that a divorced couple would have to write to the bishop. One saying, this is why you should celebrate. And, I, and again, Jim Mathis, who is leaving now, unfortunately, um, he explained this to me very pastorally and not, not, not authoritarianly. He said, you know, people are going to say, this thing is, is against scripture and it's wrong. And I want to be able to say, oh, no, no. Let me tell you about Steve and Sam. Let me tell you about their relationship. I believe it's sacramental. He's really, he was saying he needed those letters so that he could defend the couple instead of he, so he could exercise his authority over them. Does this make sense? 
Because I can tell you, the bishop does not ask me about the heterosexual weddings I do. Anytime I ask, and this is an interesting bit, if I want to do a wedding in San Diego, the Diocese of San Diego, have to have the bishop's permission. Because that's his diocese. <laughs> well, not anymore. He's retired. I don't even know who I ask. Good thing Jim Mathis gave me permission because I'm doing one in a week <laughs> in San Diego. That means... Anywhere in, oh, good question. Man, I don't know the answer to that. I used to know. It's just nice if you ask. It's nice if you ask. I mean, if a bishop says no, it's just kind of curmudgeonly. You know what I mean? I mean, they may ask you, tell me how you've prepared. And the answer is, well, we did premarital counseling. Or I sent them to a counselor and I've worked with them and I believe this is worth celebrating Christ. One Catholic and Apostolic Church. If they say no to that categorically, that'd be really weird. They can. They could just say, I hate, I hate priests from South Carolina, so no. You could do that. That's, that's the thing about the system we live in, right? But even if the bishop approves, for example, I know the wedding in New Mexico, so I guess the bishop approves, and then the yeah, because like I said, the rector controls every, every marriage in their parish, can veto any marriage, any marriage. Because you know, really, as the rector, I'm the bishop's representative here, right? And the bishop owns the deed to the property, and the bishop decides what happens on the property. But as Kathy so, so astutely pointed out, really, the only caveat is with same-sex marriage, and not, period, just only in the church, right? Just only in the church. What if one member's an atheist? It's up to the priest's discretion. How about that? And of course, this is what starts to take us back to the, the grace bit, right? The sacraments only happen if you believe the right stuff, or is sacrament what God does regardless of what you think? <laughs> I mean, that's sort of interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's really the whole question. Tom? The state. Yeah, but yeah, but in some ways you don't get any privileges from being husband and wife, other than you, what you claim with the IRS with your gifts. Do you know what I mean? Think about it, as a married person in this church, what privileges do you get that not everybody else gets? None. Right. That's just where this weird bit about marriage, you know, and we're thinking about sacraments, and I know I'm talking about law, canon law and the idiosyncrasies, but it's really, really important to think about it, right? When I do a marriage, I'm not doing it as just a priest. I'm doing it as an officer of the state, right? You can go to a judge or boat captain, or you can go to a priest. And marriage means very, very different things, you know, and, and, and I just want to say, actually, I think we'd have saved ourselves a lot of trouble over the past 30 years if we'd adopted the European system. You, I don't know if you know this one. Anybody who wants to have a civil union in Europe goes to the court because legally they become one entity. That's what happens here, civil union. If they want to get married in Europe, they go to the church next, <laughs> and the church celebrates marriages, but they don't do anything civilly. This is where we have this weird actual blending of church and state in the United States, right? Just sort of think about this. I'm a legal officer 
for the state when I do a marriage. I sign their marriage license. If I don't think the marriage is working, I can't cancel it. It's sort of a strange thing to think about. I can bring two people together legally, but I can't separate them. They go to an attorney for that. It's interesting, right? Everything's full of bizarre stuff. I've been to two weddings recently where the person that officiated was not a minister or a judge. Yeah. And how did they get permission to do that and make it legal? Yeah, well, you know that ordination has very different standards in differing communities. So I'll just tell you now, if you ever get asked to officiate a marriage or celebrate it, you can get ordained online for about $25. And, and having paid that fee to that place who now gives you your marriage certificate that allows you to do them, you can do as many as you want to. You can run a wedding chapel being ordained by the, the Holy Smoker Church of Southern Pasadena in Christ Jesus our Lord and Muhammad the Prophet, peace be upon him. Right? That could be an organization that has a 5013C3 status from the IRS and allows you to be an ordained minister for you know, their archival fee of $25, they might ask you to sign a statement of faith, unlikely. The other thing you can do is sometimes you can get permission from the state to act as an agent for a day or something like that. Both of these were similar, it was a one day thing. Yeah, that's it, so the state will do that for you, right? Because what we've decided is the church shouldn't be the only bit controlling the officiating of marriages. So we're in the middle of that, right? We're in the middle of that. Now, this, I think, is really important because we've talked about procedure the whole time, and I, I told you we talked about grace. One more procedural bit. I did a wedding here in April. Did anybody come to it? Was anybody invited to it? <laughs> um, we did a wedding here in December. I wasn't here. I did the premarital counseling, and Craig Morgan celebrated it. Anybody go to that one? Anybody invited? Um, I did a wedding in October for a couple that goes to Palmer because their clergy were too busy to do it, so they came over here. Started an hour and a half late. Anybody go to that one? <laughs> Anybody invited to that one? Does it bother you that I'm telling you I did these marriages? Why not? And so you trusted the priest's discretion. Not interesting. What are the limits of the priest's discretion? And that's really what this is all about. His conscience. Or hers, right? His or her conscience. Now, what if you knew the couple was great for each other? You knew it. And the priest said no. What would that do for your trust in your rector or your priest? Would it ruin it or would you scratch your head? You know what I mean? I'd like to know why. You'd like to know why. But you know what's so interesting? Nobody has ever asked me why I married the last three people I told you I married. And do you know why? Nobody was invited. <laughs> Not interesting? That's the weird bit about this question you've asked, Kathy. Is in general, you pretty much trust me to make decisions on your behalf. But not categorically. I mean, that's this bit. That's this little bit here, right? And if I asked you to tell me 
what kind of decisions you ask, you trust me to make, right? If I asked you to tell me what you think is sacramental about marriage that I'm making decisions about, what would you say? Whether or not a couple can have children, would anybody say that? Not about the kids, right? What if, and I don't want to be too crass, but I think it's important, what if um, there was a major health condition that made it so that the couple could never have sex? Would that disqualify folks from marriage in your mind? I'm, I'm being honest, right? And it's like safe to say it would in my mind, right? So what I hear you saying is, Marriage is about more than sex for you. Marriage is about more than sex for all of you, which makes you Episcopalians and not Catholic, right? Remember, because sex is only for procreation, right? So we, we talked about that, unity and procreation. In a Protestant church, it's unity, maybe procreation, may, maybe. But that's not the relevant bit in the sacraments, but unity, right? Interesting thing to think about. Many of you who've been married, right, um, how intimacy changes as you spend years together right? And the things that, that when you were younger you thought were so important <laughs> and how those get superseded by more important things. What are the other sacramental things you want me as a priest to make my decision on? Their commitment. Their commitment. Evidence of commitment, of walking through life, failures and successes, richer or poorer, sickness and health, forsaking all others till death do they part with God's help. Those are the vows, by the way, right? What else? If you had known that one had a character that confirmed that was very questionable as far as the commitment yeah. was concerned, would that be an influence? It would be for me. It would be really hard for me to celebrate a relationship that I had strong doubts about it. It's so hard for me to tell you honestly whether I would do it or not, but it would be hard. It would be easier for me to preside at it. But as I told you before, the prayer book calls the wedding person either the presider. Sometimes you'll find the word efficient or the celebrant. And my criteria is if I can't celebrate it, I'm not doing it. Does that make sense? Uh, of course, you know all couples have sticky issues. So the criterion for me is alongside those sticky issues are there major bits to celebrate. Sometimes I'm not always sure how it's going to prevail because you know what, in our own lives, we don't know how that's going to prevail, do we? Not always. But it's not like there can be 15 of these and one of these. <laughs> you know, there's, there, there's got to be some hope of success and unity and commitment and fidelity those are my criteria right i think what's interesting is that when it comes to same-sex marriage um, i know priests that have looked at couples that have been together for 20 30 years and of course they were living in sin but that was their commitment yeah they didn't have the ability to have it blessed so to speak and so in the discerning 
that was showing the sacramental aspect of their marriage. What they already had. So just to repeat that so everybody can hear, uh, Tim said he's known couples, particularly same-sex couples, that have been living together in a committed monogamous relationship for like 30-plus years, and the priest would say, you're living in sin by doing that, but of course those people couldn't be married. <laughs> Right? So categorically there was that issue. But you know, I think there's this other, this, this other bit, right, that's really, really hard, which is again, um, sometimes we disqualify what we think is sacramental because of scripture or reason or tradition, right? And so there's, there's people who categorically think that's wrong. I, I, I'm not asking you to tell me your judgment or reverse it. I'm asking you to tell me what you believe is sacramental about marriage. <laughs> and you're telling me bits like commitment and fidelity, right? Ability to commit. Of course, you would want to know that the people have thought through it, <laughs> which is why I told you my number one criteria is that you go through counseling as a way of verifying you've thought about what you're doing. <laughs> I told you I always ask people, why do you want to get married in the church? And if somebody says, my parents want it, that's not a disqualifier for me. Maybe it should be. Look, I'm being, I probably shouldn't record that. But it's not a disqualifier for me. If I can find something to celebrate. <laughs> you ever, ever heard of a case where someone didn't hold their peace at a wedding ceremony? What, what yeah, no. And, and I've only heard of one case where someone didn't hold their peace at an ordination. And I think what the bishop did very well is they listened and then they went, they like talked to the ordinand for about 30 seconds and said, we'll just keep going on, right? <laughs> so, so I don't know, you know, I could, it's glad you asked because at ordination, right, there was this thing like, if you know any reason this person shouldn't be ordained, speak now. And I, I don't know why, I just, I was like, <sighs> but the amazing thing was the bishop did it like this. If you know any reason why this person shouldn't be ordained, speak now or forever hold your peace. Mike, I charge you in the name of the Holy Church. <laughs> it was sort of neat, you know. I don't know why I'm scared like that. I just sort of am, you know. I had this really cool parishioner, and I said, you know, God willing and the bishop consenting before I was ordained. And she said, the heck with what the bishop thinks. We're making you a priest. <laughs> this is sort of a neat thing. Yeah. It's right. Well, no. in the prayer book, they're the same thing. They're alternate terminology that we can choose to use in the liturgy. But, but I want to tell you, I think, and different priests say different things, and they're not wrong. It's not wrong. It's like scripture. There's different choices, and some people say it's just words anyway. It doesn't matter. But for me, uh, I don't want to be an official. I realize I'm being an official when I sign the marriage license on behalf of the state and the couple. What I want to do is celebrate the sacramentality I already see in the relationship and ask God to bless them as that sacramentality continues to grow and change. Because it will change. We all know that. That's, that's what I like to do. And so I'm really big, and I'm allowed to be a, a wordy person because we're Episcopalians. If I didn't care, I'd be some other denomination, you know. But we like words a lot, and celebrant's really, really important, right? I like to be a celebrant at the Eucharist, not a presider. I don't like to preside over it. The Eucharist is where we celebrate God and God celebrates us. That's kind of a neat thing. It's God's party. 
And I like that. Well, we're asking what's sacrament of our marriage, your, your marriage, our marriage. Yeah. But a sacrament is the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Yes. <coughs> Staying together is an outward sign of God's grace because God will never, ever leave you, right? 51 years, really? Were you like 12 when you got married? Okay. Uh, yeah, outward invisible signs of God's inward invisible grace. And they've changed over time. They've changed. And some of them have gone deeper and some other. But commitment is, is an outward sign of God's grace. Reconciliation is an outward sign of God's grace. Don't you think? And if anyone doesn't say commitment, it's like number one. It's got to be number one, right? It's got to be, or you won't last after seven or ten years, right? We just sort of know that. That's what the statistics tell us too, right? Unless you're on year-long deployments and you come back for a day and you deploy again. You can make that work a long time. Uh, <laughs> don't have to have much commitment, you know, as long as the checks keep coming. But, but you, you sort of know what I mean. I think commitment is a big, big part of it. Re- again, reconciliation, right? Taking a leap of action because you don't always feel like it. I mean, these are different ways of saying commitment, right? Um, gosh. The Jewish view is so interesting, right? And, 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 and it's not just physical. You know, I told you um, in Genesis, the, the belief is that the first human being was actually, um, this is what the rabbis say in Midrash, that the first uh, human being was, was uh, a hermaphrodite, that there was just one human being, and God couldn't find the right fit in the animal world. So what God did is put the human being to sleep and pull the huge bit out of the human being's side, not rib. This is important. It's not a rib. It's the side. And the rabbis say that's when God separated the sexes so that when the sexes came together in community, they went back to being whole from which they sort of were made. And the other bit the rabbis say is in Genesis, you know, um, everything's great until they, they eat that fruit, which they think was a pomegranate, not an apple. They have those over there, right? So they eat this pomegranate, and the first thing they realize is that they're naked, and the second thing they realize is that they're ashamed. That's a wonderful writing from the rabbis. Marriage, they say, is when two people come together naked and are unashamed. Now that's kind of a neat bit. I don't just mean with their bodies, but I sure do mean with their bodies, right? That's sacramental, isn't it? When your spouse knows your deepest insecurity holds it gently instead of pointing at it or pushing on it, right? Sacramental, don't you think? Part of commitment. Part of commitment. See, now we're getting to the right part. I, I, I better quit or we'll be late for church again. Um, okay, maybe we'll end up talking about this one just a little bit more because this, this is the power of the thing, right? What's sacramental? See you next week. <laughs>